Welcome to the Chasing Happiness Podcast, where we explore the secrets to achieving a fulfilling and joyful life. Our mission is to provide you with the tools, insights, and inspiration you need to overcome obstacles and thrive in all areas of your life. Each week, we bring you interviews with thought leaders, experts, and everyday people who have found happiness in the face of adversity. We cover a wide range of topics, from personal development and entrepreneurship to health and wellness. So whether you're looking to achieve financial freedom, improve your relationships, or enhance your overall well-being, you'll find the guidance you need on the Chasing Happiness podcast. Let's get to this week's episode. Hey guys, Ryan DeMent from Chasing Happiness podcast. I hope you guys are having a great day. Today on the podcast, we have Rob Krejcik, and I know I didn't pronounce it correctly, and he already told me, guys, I butcher him. So what we're going to talk about with Rob is going to be a little unique, and we're going to go down some rabbit holes. He is using technology to really be effective with our work week, where he's reduced it to four days, but he's also a fractional CFO. He is the type of guy that you're going to want to hear what he has to say with what he's doing in his business, but how he's helping other business leaders and entrepreneurs. Rob, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Ryan. Really appreciate the opportunity to chat and really excited to, to talk with you and the listeners. Absolutely. Awesome. Before we get into what you're doing in your business, just a little personal background, a little bit about you and your journey, and then we'll start going down some rabbit holes. Yeah, totally. So I, I know I grew up in Wisconsin. I'm a came from a town of 2,500 people, a very small, great, very, um, very supportive family. And I went to UW Madison, got degrees in finance, Spanish, and management, and then got a Wall Street job afterward where I was a sell side equity analyst, analyzing medical device and pharmaceutical stocks, and ended up getting my CFA charter holder designation while I was there. It's an MBA, but specifically for financial analysis. But I just felt like the corporate life probably wasn't for me. And so I ended up being a nine-time business owner, I ended up owning three health clubs in three different states, full break, I fixed cell phone repair stores, a technology startup, and then I sold all of those um, businesses and my current consultancy is called Humans First. I do fractional CFO work and I also help individuals, groups, and organizations improve uh, their mental health, relationships, and productivity through better technology mindfulness. I feel like my background is unique in that I really understand the finance side of things from, from a business standpoint, but I really understand operations and entrepreneurship. And generally, those two types of people are totally opposite. Entrepreneurs and finance yes. people, very different, but I'm somehow managed to be those two people in what? Yeah, it's really, it's really fun. That's a cool journey that you, did you actually move to New York and work on Wall Street or did you stay in Wisconsin? So I stayed in Wisconsin. The, the firm that I was at was one of the biggest investment banks in Wisconsin called Robert Baird. And they, my, I, my family's from there and my girlfriend at the time was living there. So it just made sense to me, but there was still a very, one of the most respected middle market investment banks and research departments on Wall Street. So I saw in your bio, you basically accomplished everything you want. You bought everything, but you just were not fulfilled. And that's why you went out and bought those other businesses. So then what happened when you bought those other businesses? You were not fulfilled with those either? No, I was fulfilled with them, but I just, you have to learn the life cycle of when, you know, what's happening in an industry and when a business is competitive and when the business model is becoming not as competitive. And I just felt like with the businesses I was in, I stayed in them until they weren't necessarily competitive anymore. And then it was time to move on to something else. And I, I try to see that before it happens and because you don't want to hold on to something too long and then have the value decline. And so it just made sense for me to sell them when I did. 
just out of curiosity on a side note, what did not make those businesses competitive anymore at that point? Yeah, the health clubs were with a franchise called Anytime Fitness. And I do think it's actually more competitive than when I sold. But at the time, just because of a lot of dynamics that happened during COVID. But what happened was when I owned them, Planet Fitness and a lot of the other low cost competitors were opening up these $10 clubs right across the street. And that was about a quarter of the price of what we were charging. And it just became very difficult to, from a selling standpoint to convince someone hey, you should pay four times as much for a club that's smaller and has less equipment. That was a hard sell for a while. When I saw other owners go from super profitable, like they had thousand member clubs to having their membership cut in half in like a year. And that in that business model, that's all of the profit because almost all the costs are fixed. And so they went from being super profitable to making basically no money. And that's just, I didn't want to take that risk. That is a cutthroat business. That is, that's tough. Cause I've, I was, I've been a member of any time. I've been a member of 24 hour fitness. What else have I done? I don't know, but it's pretty crazy what they're actually trying to accomplish with so little coming in off of those monthly dues. It's, hey, you know what? That's good for you that you got to go through that. But man, it's not one of those businesses I'd want to be in. I know we joked about it before the actual recording, but for me, I want to be in a stale old business that is not using technology and you can come in and implement that. And it's been around for 12 or 15 years. Yeah. That's what I look for in a business. And a lot of people think I'm crazy and it's, it's a stable business. It could be an industry that's competitive. I don't care about competition because if I can substantiate or differentiate myself from the competition, then so be it. But if it's, if the business or the industry is not utilizing technology properly, whether it be for the top of the funnel, the bottom of the funnel. You're missing out on a bunch of customers and it's crazy how people look at that and say, oh, that's too much work. And it's, to me, it's, that's my wheelhouse. I love that. That strategy is great. And I, like we were chatting about beforehand, I do see that there's a lot of baby boomers that are retiring and they haven't thought about technology in their company for 30 years. And if you or I or someone else comes in and even just has a moderate amount of, you know, good technological implementations and ideas can dramatically change the business and provide a lot of value to the business, create a lot of value. So totally agree with that strategy. I love that. Yeah, we went off on a tangent, guys. We're going to come back around. So tell the listeners a little bit about what you're doing and how you got into this space. And then let's talk about technology and how it affects us on a daily basis and some tips that we can use to effectively manage our daily lives but also be more productive. Yeah, so let's just back up a little bit and talk about the statistics around what's happening with our technology use. So in America today, before COVID, so you can't blame COVID on this statistic, right? People don't realize that average media time in the vast majority of that is screen time. Average media time in America per day is 12 hours and 21 minutes. 12 hours. 12 hours? That's 12 that's, hours. That's measured by Nielsen, who's been measuring that for half a century. So it's very wow. accurate. And, and excuse me. So the, just to be clear, I, when I talk about this topic, I want to let people know that I love technology. It does amazing things for humanity. It helps us communicate. It helps, allows us to be entertained. It does so many things and it and can be additive to our life, but it can also take away from or detract from our life too. And so to me, What's, what I'm trying to educate people on is finding the right balance, right? I think a lot of us today are out of balance in terms of our technology use, and it's having repercussions, many repercussions that we're not even aware of. And so when you think about it, 
12 hours and 21 minutes a day of media time is three quarters of the waking lot hours of your life. Three quarters of your life is spent with technology. And if you look at how humans existed 50,000 years ago when we were cavemen and cave women, for instance, we spent about 90% of our time with humans and socializing with other people. And so that is almost flipped. We used to spend 90% with humans. Now we're spending almost 90% with technology. And obviously that's going to have some repercussions on our, on not only us as individuals, but as on our society that we aren't even conceptualizing. And so that's the point of my company, Humans First, is to generate some awareness and educate people on those things so that they can determine if Maybe they want to change their behavior or the way that they're living, or maybe they don't. That's okay too. It's amazing when you go out to dinner and you look at people at the table and all four people or whoever's at the table, they're all on their cell phones. And it's, I'm like, oh my gosh. And with you, technology's great, but we have to learn how to harness it, use it properly. And it seems like we use it as a crutch. And I'm not saying for the pandemic or anything like that. We've used technology as a crutch when it comes to communication. And when it should be a face-to-face conversation, people are sending you a text. And that's, that's, to me, is just so wrong and out of bounds. And I try to be very cognizant of it, but we struggle with it. So how do we, how do we start working within the system that we have, but also improving our interactions with others? Yeah, I really resonate with what you said, Ryan, and I totally agree. It's not surprising that more and more of our communication is going digital for a good reason. It's more convenient, it's more scale, and it generally is easier, right? We interpret it to be easier, and, but here's the kind of the hidden cost of that. So what people don't realize is we interpret all digital communication, whether it's over social media, text, email, anything that's digital and written, we interpret that more negatively than voice communication or in-person communication. The reason is because humans are hardwired for, with a negativity bias for a survival mechanism. Like we, we inherently think of negative things because it keeps us alive. So for instance, when we read an email, if that same information was spoken to us, we would interpret it much more positively if it was spoken. So the big picture is the more that we communicate digitally, the more negative and cynical society becomes as a whole. And is there an easy solution to that? No, obviously not. But me just even helping people on this podcast be aware of that, they can start to realize, oh, you know what, when I'm reading this email, maybe the person doesn't really mean this that negatively. I'm just interpreting it a little bit negatively. Maybe if they just start to have that awareness, that to me is is a win. That's the start of how you change your behavior and how you ultimately, hopefully do more communication in person or over the phone. Yeah. It's one of those moments where you get that email and you're like, what is this person trying to say? That's when I just pick up the phone and call them and just ask the question, what's going on here? And that's, I love that. that's just life. But, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like that's a dying action that's happening in younger generations. I'm pushing 50. And I'm still close enough to baby boomers, you know, where they do that. But I work with some clients in some cities in my day job in real estate and in doing affordable housing development. And the people that work for the city, they rather email me than have a conversation with me. Because when they send me an email, I'll pick up the phone and call them. They never pick up the phone. It's how am I supposed to communicate with you if I can't have a physical conversation with you? I don't want to do it via email because I need to get all the nuances of the conversation out so we understand where we're at because it's a negotiation process and it's, you want to negotiate with me via email? Oh boy. 
Yeah, that totally resonates. And one, I forgot the exact percentage, but I love data and statistics. So I'm sure we'll go over a bunch of them on the podcast today. But one of them is over 50% of Gen Z is afraid to make a phone call. Afraid, like they wow. won't do it. Like even if they're asked to do it, they will not do it. And that to me is like almost incomprehensible. Like over half of that age group simply won't make a phone call. I don't It's like puzzling to me. But I think it's because a lot of them just have anxiety and they're not used to it. And if you didn't grow up with talking, talking to people on the phone and instead you were only texting, I can understand why you might not be as comfortable talking on the phone. But then how do they function in life? Are these, if you're telling me 50% of, the, of Gen Z will not pick up the phone, you telling me those people are sitting in the basement of mom and dad's and just not working? What, how do those people function in life? You got to talk to people to work. So it's interesting you asked that, Ryan, because there's something called psychologists or started studying this about a decade ago. It's called extreme social withdrawal. And it actually started in Japan, but it, it's a worldwide, or it started being studied in Japan, I should say, but it's a worldwide phenomenon and it's definitely happening here in the United States. And what the estimate is about 5% or one in 20 people has this extreme social withdrawal, which is a ton. That's a massive amount of yeah. people. And what they find is that these people, basically they just stay at home. They use a lot of technology or digital communication. A lot of times it's a male freak playing video games. By the way, I was addicted to video games when I was in high school. So I get that. And they basically, they're not working. They're not volunteering. They're not in school and they're just at home and they leave the house generally like one to two times a week at most. And that's it. And so this is, but the prevalence of this has been growing a lot over the last 10 years. And so to answer your question, yes, about 5% of people are doing exactly what you said. And that's only growing. It's a, it's actually, I've been speaking with elementary schools and it's a very real phenomenon that people don't even realize is happening if they don't have kids, like teenagers or young kids. So there's two things. So I think it was several months ago in the Wall Street Journal read one of their writings up on the unemployment rate in working age male from males, excuse me, from the age of 24 to 43 or 44, which is prime work years. They're saying there's almost 12 million men that have not returned back to the workforce because of this phenomenon to where they're sitting in the basement, not working type of a thing. But then they continue to go on to state that, like you said, this is something that's been going on for several years or maybe even a decade, however long it's been. But then they came back and said, the pandemic plus technology, plus the ability of their parents to enable them, to allow them to live this life is now exacerbated that problem to where now we have future generations that are just tagging onto it because they see them doing that. So now they say, hey, it's cool. So now we're going to do that. They're now saying in the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to double or triple that, that number of working age males not coming into the workforce. Yeah. So I, I love everything you just said. Let's talk a little bit about helicopter parenting, because this is just Rob's theory. I didn't read this somewhere, but I was connecting a bunch of dots. And here's what I believe is happening. If you look at how you could describe helicopter parenting very roughly as just overprotective parenting. It's the parent who wants to go to the kid's school and talk to the principal about every little issue and all those types of things. And 
I'm not a parent yet, so I can't say I directly relate, but I have, there's a lot of people in my life who told me similar things and I can understand what's going on. Here's what I believe is happening to society. So if you look at the history of helicopter parenting, it started to increase around the year 2000. And you might ask what happened during then and why, why did, what contributed to that? And I believe here's what contributed to it. So around the year 2000 was when we started having many more cell phones, as well as internet connected computers at home. And so why is that? How does that play into this? What constant connectivity does with cell phones and then exposure to the internet online does is it makes you aware of more threats all the time. So for instance, think about a lot of the content that you, that you look at on the internet especially many years ago, right? You probably were just looking at a lot of news content online because there wasn't too much else. We didn't have social media in the year 2000. So you're probably looking at a lot of news and how does, what types of stories does the news show you? Any, and I'm, this is any news company. It's not specific to one. They show you very like anger inducing or like very outrageous content or very shocking content because the more shocking it is, the more you pay attention, because again, we have this negativity bias uh, as a survival mechanism. So the more shocking the content, the more eyeballs the newspaper, the news company gets, and then the more money they make in advertising. Well, the business model of the news companies is to show you negative crap so that you pay attention and they make more money. If you go online and only all are things that you believe are threats as a parent, what does that do? That makes you want to overprotect your kid. That makes you want to protect them from all the world's threats that are happening. And then that started this shift toward helicopter parenting. And then these kids, as they grow up coddled, don't have the ability to be resilient. They don't have the ability to work through difficult situations yes. and they just can't function. This and, is what I believe is happening. And it oh, actually started you, happening 20 years ago. I agree with you hundred percent. There's nothing I don't disagree with you on that. But the thing that adds into that is then the free, and this is just, the, again, this is just Ryan's personal opinion. We've become less free thinkers. What you're right. saying, what we're seeing online is dictating how we think and we buy into it almost like a cult, if you want to call it that. And how are you supposed to have a discerning mind if you don't actually try to see both sides of whatever story you're looking at and try to make a free thought or a thought on your own to say, okay, I do believe that or I don't believe it. It's immediately, I believe it and I have to go there. And that starts people down. And I, this is just me again, yeah. a huge black hole. And then it, they never come back from it. And it's, again, I know numbers better than I do. And this is just one of those things I'd like to be able to learn more about is how many people do we have that in, not just in the States, but in the world that believe that and go down that rab that, that black hole and never come back. And it's, it just seems like they're lost. So I can tell you actually, so 1 million percent agree with everything you're saying. Let's, I'll give you some numbers. So in just the United States, I don't know how, what the statistic is for the world, but just in the United States alone, over 50% of the US population logs into Facebook every day, every yeah. day. And so if you, and what people don't realize about Facebook is one human controls that entire platform, Mark Zuckerberg, 55% mm -hmm. of the voting rights for that company. So there isn't a board of directors that can over, that can outvote him. No, no person on earth, except for a law that's made against Facebook could tell Mark Zuckerberg how to run Facebook, essentially. 
So what's happening is Mark Zuckerberg decides the how and there's by the way there's about three billion people on facebook's platforms three billion almost half the earth so mark one human decides makes the algorithm and decides what three billion people see all the time isn't if you think about that like you know is that what we want for humanity one person controls the social fabric of three billion people i don't think he can be trusted to do that but that's a bigger discussion but anyway, so 50% of people log into Facebook every single day in the United States. And so that algorithm is controlling what 50% of the people get influenced by or believe or start to read. And to your point earlier, that has so many repercussions for a magnitude of, of life events and society that no one understands. No one even understands the complete implications of that, not even close. And that's, again, what I want to bring to people's attention are you do you actively agree to be manipulated by facebook for hours a day do you want to do that it's your choice but that's essentially what you're doing when you go on facebook every day that kind of reminds me of that the old saying is you're trying to keep up with the joneses now we're trying to keep up with social media and what we see on social media even the stories but just what is put out on social media, like for reals, there are minute and 30 second videos put out and these people show all this money and this lifestyle. But when you get down to it, that's not their true lifestyle. They're just trying to. Yeah. It's just fake. Show off. Yeah. And people believe that. And then it, it, through my podcast, I'm, I have to say, I'm lucky and blessed that people reach out to me and say, Hey, I want to be like you. So you want to be a, a 10 year overnight success. And I said, 10 years is just where I'm at. It's taken me two failed businesses, $100,000 in debt, and I'm still learning how to run the businesses I have today. And I make failure. I fail every single day. But the one thing I can tell you is I don't give up. Believe me, I've been knocked down to my knees saying I'm, my back's against the wall. I want to give up, but I always find a way. There's just that resiliency in me that goes that route. But when they, these, the younger, I, they're probably mid twenties, early thirties. They say, I put out a video on TikTok and it go viral. I said, I have no idea. I said, believe me, I'm on social media, but I'm on it for other reasons. I'm on it to, to produce. Yeah, yeah, for purpose and put my message out there. If you go look at my TikTok channel, I've got a couple hundred followers. That's it. Am I worried about it? No, but I put my message out there. It's all about my podcast. And they're so worried about views and likes. And then it gets down to it. And I don't know if you like Gary Vee or not, but. One of the things he talks about that's very crucial about social media is tune out the highs, tune out the lows. So tune out the good, tune out the bad. And if you're going to put your message out there, just be able to go down the middle and work it. Yeah. And these kids get so worked up over when somebody slams them or calls them out or says something instead of saying, hey, thanks for the feedback and have an honest conversation with them. We don't know how to do that anymore. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up, Ryan, because this I want to share with you what I think is the single most important thing after five years of research that I've learned about what technology does to us. So I can explain why those kids aren't open to that feedback and why there's this host of other, we'll just say repercussions from technology use. Let me just ask you a question. Can you think about a time in the last month when you were super stressed out? Yes. About, and it could be anything in your life. Yes. Would you mind just sharing it with me? You don't have to give me a ton of details, but just would you share a little bit with me? We're going through a pretty large development option, and I'm trying to make sure all the numbers work and making sure we've got the capital to do that. Yeah. I was stressed about making sure the money was there to do this development. 
Yeah, totally. And so that to me sounds very stressful for sure. And so I'm guessing that, and can you, so can you just give me three adjectives that describe how you feel when you're like in the thick of that engagement? Like what were three adjectives that describe how you felt? I was anxious, frightful. Yeah. And guess the, not guess, the third would be, was I wasn't a hundred percent convinced of myself being able to pull it off. So you had some self-doubt. Yes. Okay. So I heard, I heard anxiety, fear, and self-doubt, right? And again, those are very normal human emotions in reaction to a stressful event. Here's what's happening. Here's the pieces of the puzzle that people are not putting together. A lot of our technology use activates our fight or flight nervous system. It's our sympathetic nervous system that gets activated when we're in a stressful situation. And so all those things you described, anxiety, fear, self-doubt, we, so when we use our technology, it activates our fight or flight system. And then we become filled with anxiety, fear, self-doubt, and many other emotions all the time. Email use activates it. Social media use activates it. Even text, texting can activate it because there's threatening messages that can be perceived or received over text. So again, if we're, if technology causes stress and stress causes anxiety, self-doubt and fear among many other emotions, and we're using technology for 12 hours and 21 minutes a day, basically what's happening is our fight or flight nervous system is being amped up and activated basically the entire day and humans aren't prepared or we don't have the capacity to be like that and exist in that state. And so that's why our entire nation has more anxiety than we used to 10 years ago, or even a year ago, or even five years ago. And so people don't understand that this fight or flight activation is happening to them all day, every day. And that's why they feel so crappy all the time. That's why they feel so anxious. It even eventually can lead to depression if you are, if you, if it's done long enough. And I think this has a host of implications for all of humanity that no one even under, they're not putting these dots together. They're not connecting these dots between technology use and all these mental issues. So how do we start working on this or start tackling this? Cause I know it's a big problem. Yeah. So I think, first of all, it's again about finding balance and what's right for you, right? So maybe my amount of cell phone use is not appropriate for you and vice versa. But what I know is in America, the average person uses their smartphone about four hours a day. And again, is on screens and media 12 hours and 21 minutes a day. So my thought is, I don't know, can we reduce that by a couple hours a day? Maybe if we got down to 10 hours a day and we had an extra two hours a day to be with people and connect with people. I think that's a huge step in the right direction, a massive step in a positive way. And that would, to me, would be more balanced. And so then the, the question is, okay, how do I use screens for two hours less a day? And the answer for me to structure your technology use in a way that's conducive to you using it a little bit less. And let me just give you a couple of simple examples. So the first one is on your phone, there's on, on iPhone, it's called, uh, the setting is called raise to wake. On Android, it's called lift to wake. And basically if you go into, and generally those settings are activated by default. And so if you go in and de deactivate that setting, what it does is makes your, it makes it so that when you move your, physically move your phone, it doesn't turn the screen on. And so then you don't get sucked into your phone as much 
when, when you're moving it around, don't have the temptation to look at it. The other thing it does is it saves battery life. You use your phone less, you save battery life, and you can be more present. When I changed that setting on my phone, it saved me about two hours of screen time every week. That's a massive amount of time for clicking one button and it takes 10 seconds. So that's just one example of many that you know I have on how you could structure your technology use differently. I got to actually look on my phone. On Android, <laughs> it's called Lift to lift, Raise? Lift to Wake. Lift to oh, Wake. Lift to yeah. wake. So if That'd you just curious. search for that in settings, you can disable it. Oh, lift awake. There you go. Okay. I'm going to have to do that. I'm going to try that out. That's a good nice. tip. The other thing is I actually put my phone on do not disturb starting at 10 o'clock at night till Love six o'clock in the morning. But Love here's that. the other thing that I've had to learn in my journey, because prior to be, being a business owner, I spent 25 years in corporate America. So I was running call centers, any financial wow. instrument I touched. I had four, anywhere between 2,000 and 6,000 people reporting me at the peak of when I was there. So I had 24 hours access to people because they needed help at some point. My phone would go off all the time. That had to stop. So I did that. But the other thing that really helps me avoid and just disconnect from technology is every morning when I get up at 4.30, I walk my dog, I get ready. But then I have 45 minutes of quiet time to where I journal and people listening, nice. journaling does consist of picking up a pen and putting it to paper. And I do write. Yes. I read some motivational stuff and some devotional and I read a book. That's the other thing is I know you're a huge reader. I think that could be another way that we can actually get off of technology is find books that you like to read. You don't yeah. have to. It doesn't have to be a physical book. Let's start. If you want to use a Kindle reader or whatever, that's fine. But you're reading it at least and you're exercising your brain, as I say, if you think about it, the most successful people or the people that thrive in life, they say they read between 20 and 40 books a year. Yep. And if you just read 20 pages a day, you're getting yourself to, I think, three books or four books a year. And that's almost 10 times more than what the average person reads today. If I'm right, I don't remember all the stats. I just know that's how I started because in high school and college, I hated reading. I got out of school. And I became a huge reader and started with 20 pages. Then I went to 40 pages. And now every single morning, it's, I, that's my time to read. Nice. I don't stop. I just go through it. I love that. Yeah. And I definitely think that reading books has been one of the biggest, like most impactful changes in my life and best decisions I made, period. And that's why about five years ago when I started researching everything for humans first, I was like, man, this Bill Gates says that he reads all the time. And in fact, he takes an entire week every year to go to a cabin and it's his think week. He just reads and thinks about stuff. And I'm like, if he's doing that. There must be something good about that. And so I just made it a goal of mine to read a lot. And I think it's absolutely been one of the reasons why I'm able to talk about a lot of the technology mindfulness stuff. Cause I, I've really just been curious about the world and I wanted to become a student of the world. So with the technology, so putting our phone on do not disturb, lift awake, that type of stuff, what other things can we do? Yeah. So you can also, like you're setting your phone for a bedtime, I call it like a bedtime schedule. I do recommend ideally doing that at least an hour before going to bed, if not two. But again, it really depends on you and your personal use. Other things, and again, like this is, these are some of the things that people are a little bit more hesitant to adopt, but I've adopted them. One of them, 
I think one of the biggest changes for me using my smartphone was I completely deleted email off my phone. I don't have a way to check my email on my phone at all. And now a lot of people like I <laughs> tell them that and they that blows their mind. So here's an alternative, right? There's a couple alternatives. The first one is you can move your mail app to the very last screen of apps so that you have to purposefully scroll when to get there. And then you have to be more intentional and deliberate about your use. At the very least, though, what you could do is you could turn off your notifications for your email on your phone. And I think a lot of people at this point have probably done that because we just get inundated with so many emails. The average person gets about 126 emails. A day. That's just not very realistic to be able to service that many notifications. And I also have done the same thing with social media. I've deleted it completely off my phone. And then I, and again, I access these things only from a desktop or laptop. I didn't delete my social media accounts, for instance. But another thing you could do with social media is you could also move it to the last page of your apps, or you could change the password to something that's really long and obnoxious, and then make it so that the app doesn't auto save the password. So that every time you want to go on your social media app, you you have to enter the password manually. And yeah, it's going to be a pain in the butt. But that's the point is then you might only do it a couple of times a day and you're going to be more intentional and deliberate about your use. How many people do you think will do that or do that on a daily basis? When I give speeches and talks and work with groups, I would believe it or not, I actually think more people are willing to delete their social media than they are their email. People are really protective of their email on their phone. It's crazy. But I haven't had it on my phone for about three years. And I, I can't say that no bad thing has never happened from that. But the very the few very small bad things that happened are way smaller than the amount of presence and time that I get back from not having it on there. But to answer your question, probably less than 10% of people listening would do that, either one of those things. But at least moving it to the last page of your apps is a really good start. We are addicted to that phone and we're addicted to this uh, technology. It's tough. I'm with you. I like my quiet time and I don't pick up my phone. I've not taken social media off my phone. I've not taken email. But I also don't spend a lot of time on it after my workday is over. Typically, because I work out of my house, I will spend my time on it there. And then once I'm done, I'm pretty much done because in the evening, it's family time. It's relaxing and doing that type of stuff. But it's also, it's, no, I'm not on technology because I, I like the Wall Street Journal. I nice. just, I like reading yeah. it. I have it on my tablet, but I don't have email or social media on my tablet. It's just meant for reading and I'll read there. Am I technically away from technology? Not completely because I'm on a tablet. I can't remember the last time I got a physical copy of a newspaper. And I know <laughs> they still make the Wall Street Journal in a physical copy because they always yeah. say, oh, we'll deliver it to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but that's, I think that's where I don't, we don't differentiate our days or our time in our days to where it's. I guess if we I digress and can go down rabbit holes with this, but back in the 50s and 60s, you'd go to work, you'd come back and it was family time and you had that work time was work time, family time was family time. Now yeah. it's all jumbled together and blended and we're not willing to delineate and say, okay, this is where my work time stops. This is where my family time starts. Yeah, and I really think that's one of the kind of the root causes of a lot of the technology problems is we don't have good boundaries. We don't have, for instance, if, if you're at a, a, the vast majority of companies that I talk to do not have a written standards of communication or written communication guidelines. And so the problem with that is then if there's no 
formal written guidelines, what everyone is forced to do is just guess how and when and how much to communicate. And of course, not everyone's expectations are the same. And so some people will be, will be guessing one thing and other people will be guessing another thing. And what that does is not only does it create a massive amount of unneeded stress in the organization, but it also duplicates time and effort. And so it's massively inefficient. And so just a simple, and I have a document that I share with companies, and I'm happy to share it with your podcast listeners, and you can put it in the notes, so link to it in the notes or whatever. But I just have a template that I share with companies, and it's simple. It's two pages, and you just change a couple parts of the template and then share it with your staff and implement it, and it dramatically changes how your company can communicate. That takes a couple hours of time. It's not a big ask. It will exponentially save the amount of time that that's spent in your company communicating if it's implemented correctly. It's amazing how we over-engineer things and you can simplify it in two pages and make it work. But that's, and we're going to wind this down and, and take this thing to the finish line, but do you think technology has just gotten out of control and we're never going to get that genie back in the bottle again? I think, you know, what, what a lot of people don't realize is, especially for consumer-facing businesses, the business model of most, not of certainly not all, but most tech companies is to take as much of your time and attention as possible because that gets them the most money. That gets, if you have more, if you spend more time and attention with a company, you're getting more engagement and then the company generally makes more money. So your time and attention is the product. You are the product, not the software. You are the product, your time and attention. And so once you start to realize that, oh, wait, like Facebook's trying to make me stay on the platform as long as possible so that they make more money in advertising. I am the product in Facebook. Dang, now you can become aware of that and you can decide if you want to become the product more or not. Like it's up to you. But once you know that, you can see that a lot of companies are buying for your time and attention and human attention is now the most valuable commodity on earth. That allows you the freedom to decide how you want to interact with companies a lot differently. That I think is very empowering. But I agree to all that. But how do we get people to realize that and start that goes back to free thinking. Got to mm. have an original thought for yourself to say, I'm the commodity. Now I've got to do something about it. I don't think there's enough pain to get off the couch or in the basement, whatever, to make change that quickly on that stuff. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd like to be wrong, to be honest. I So I'm going to say something that I, I don't like this prediction of mine either, but I honestly think that our mental health crisis in America is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I think that people still don't believe that technology is contributing massively to this mental health crisis. And I think that we're, they're gonna need, there's going to need to be more depression and anxiety and suicide and all these things that are horrible for our world. And it, that's going to need to get worse before it gets better, because I agree with you, people don't, there's unfortunately not enough pain for people to realize that this is the root cause of a lot of this problem. And I, and, but then that's why I'm very motivated. And I, I'm, there's things that people can do, but this problem, I believe this is the hardest problem on earth to solve, but that's why I'm working on it. I'm very motivated by that because I like challenges and I like hard things. And it has not been easy. I'll be honest with you. It's not been easy at all for me these last five years when in working on this, it's very hard to get people to see this and to realize that it's happening to them. But this is 
affecting 5.1 billion people who are connected to the internet. It's just how much is it affecting? I, that's I, the whole goal of my company is to get people to understand that. I feel you 100% because this podcast is dedicated to change and being able to implement it. It's not a four-letter word. And a lot of people do not like the stuff that we talk about on this podcast or what I put out on social media because it means that they're deficient in something. And it's tough. It's It can be a real... Uh, Painted in the tuchus, as I would say, about some of this stuff, because it's truly changes up to you and no one can force you to change. But if you want a better life or you want to accomplish things or whatever you want to do, it starts with you and it has to end with you. You can't let others influence what you're trying to do. And that's where I go back to tuning out the good and the bad. And you just keep on going down the road with what you're trying to do. But we've lost sight of that. And it's that's pretty sad. Yeah. And one other thing that I always like to ask people is, or one thought and then a question, right, is the amount of love, success, and happiness in this world are infinite. Imagine how much love, success, and happiness we could all have together if we all decided to put humans first. Yeah, I love that. That's a great place for us to wrap this up. So before we go, what is the single best place everyone can get a hold of you if they want to start changing their technology habits? Yeah, absolutely. You can check out my website. It's humansfirst.us, or you can just email me. My email address is rob, R-O-B, at humansfirst.us. One other thing that I'd like to offer the listeners of this podcast is a free half an hour call with me to chat about your technology mindfulness. There's no obligation. It's free. If you just email me, I'll email you a Zoom link, and we can set up a time to chat. I'd love to talk to you and connect with you, and I hope that I can help you out. Awesome. I'll put both links in the show notes and we'll link to that so people can reach out to you. Sir, thank you for coming on. It's been a great conversation. It's been healthy. I love what you're doing and I hope you keep on changing the world out there because we need the help. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ryan. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to chat and really enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate you. You're welcome.